Hi, I'm Glenn Harper, CPA and owner of Harper & Company, CPAs Plus, and partner in Sula Consulting. In each episode, my co-host, Julie Smith, Harper & Company's practice manager and partner in Sula Consulting, and I will interview a different guest about their entrepreneurial journey. The podcast features interviews with business owners, aka entrepreneurs, who bring intriguing and entertaining clarity to the entire entrepreneurial journey, giving others confidence to build their business. Our goal is to provide actionable value to you, the entrepreneur, to help you do business or build a business. Every entrepreneur deserves to enjoy the journey. Learning from others offers valuable insight and inspiration. We want to provide insight on the why, the how, the shortcuts, and the value add that many entrepreneurs wish they would have had identified at the onset of their journey. Sit back and enjoy the journey. Welcome to another edition of the Empowering Entrepreneurs, the Harper & Company Way. I'm Glenn Harper. Julie Smith. Good to see you, Julie. What's up today? You're a little red. What happened this weekend? Uh, college graduation, and I was under the uh, welder at the stadium watching my daughter graduate, and apparently you're supposed to wear sunscreen for that when oh. you're there for four hours. And Gotcha. I am, you missed that memo. But yeah, but uh, we'll get it next time. Daughter number three will be in a couple years, and I'll wear the big hat so I can be a safari guy. Well, I just wanted to uh, uh, start today. We've got an, a guest today named John Apino, and he's a fellow entrepreneur. He's the brains behind Contract Diagnostics, a physician contract review. Uh, it's a company that provides industry-specific data. John will review the physician's specific, specific contract and then partner with them to negotiate the most favorable contracts, which sounds kind of intriguing. And uh, John, it looks like you're uh, welcome, and it looks like you're from Brookings, South Dakota. Is that true? Big city of dreams. I know. Absolutely. It's the craziest thing. Oh. You're the second guest in our in our uh, like window here that is from Brookings, South Dakota, which is in the fourth largest city in South Dakota, which is really cool. Uh, is that how you decided to go to South Dakota State there? Yeah, unfortunately, I took the easy path and uh, I didn't jump out of South Dakota for my undergrad, I stayed right there in my hometown, and uh, it was nice. My mom was close. I had tons of friends, but it was the easy thing to do. I wish I would have done it differently, but looking back. But, but yeah, that's why I became a jackrabbit, and I'm, I, now I'm curious on who your other guest was from well, Berkey. So, I heard, I heard that you took the bumblebee for a joyride. Is that true? Well, I'm sorry? The bumblebee? Apparently, South Coast State's got this one weird automobile oh. thing that they do, and it's like a whole traditional thing for like the last 60 years or something. Yeah. I didn't know no. if you were that. I just heard a rumor. I was just checking. No, I have not uh, stolen any bumblebees, but Hobo Days is our big, like, uh, our yes. big, you know, um, our day and uh, but homecoming and whatever. And it's a big, giant party. And, you know, it's it's a ton of fun for sure. Well, indeed, uh, did you grow up in the agricultural side of it or are you a city kid? No, a city kid from <laughs> South Dakota, you know, the fourth largest, which is 25,000 people maybe now, you know. Um, so, a, a city for South Dakota. Um, and then I moved to Rapid City, which is a okay. bigger city, you know, about 100,000. And then I moved to Kansas City, a bigger city, two and a half million. But all my friends from New York and from San Francisco still call Kansas City a, a little tiny cow town. So Isn't that funny? It's all, I guess, based on your perspective. Well, they just fly over it, so they don't really know, right? <laughs> did, did you end up yeah. in Kansas City for the Ribs, the Royals, or the Chiefs, or just did it happen to go there? So I went down there for work, actually, um, and I had some family there, and uh, it was a easy transition from where I was working in Rapid City after my undergrad, um, and then there was a, a, a bigger job, same company with a promotion and more money in Kansas City, and it was the path that I was in on that at that time in corporate, 
And um, that was like a great next step. It was a bigger city, more opportunity, um, family there, still the Midwest. And it was, uh, you know, still a, a, a big move for, for us. But uh, at the same time, it was uh, an easy move with the company. Well, you wanted to you wanted to be have a real job and be in the corporate America. Is that what your goal was at the time? It was. I worked in pharmaceuticals uh, and in biotech and a couple different uh, companies and many different roles. I had I held lots of different roles in the organization, in the sales, in the marketing, uh, in contracting, and everything else. And it was a it was an interesting. Um, I, I learned a ton, and it's what ended up leading me to find a, a niche, which is what you know, drives me today and, and kind of created the passion behind contract diagnostics. Had you been a uh, entrepreneur before growing up as a kid? Were you hustling, you know, yards and stuff like that, or was it not so much? Oh, funny enough. So I started a stereo company, Car Stereos, when I was 17. Um, not because I wanted to have a big company and make a lot of money. I There were certain brands of stereo equipment that we wanted in Brookings, and there was one one small stereo company and they didn't have the good brands and we didn't feel like they gave the customer uh, a good deal. They didn't have the right brands. They didn't have good service. They were more like we wanted to sell and push stuff on you than provide value and service. And so my friend and I started a company at 17 just so we could get our brands and it did well. It's still going successfully. I don't, I don't have a participation in it now. And then I started uh, in, what was it, in 1999. Um, in South Dakota, um, it, maybe, I don't know, maybe the internet was slower to catch on, but you know, you could buy stuff online in the late nineties. And I was one of the few people who would go on and actually trust this computer with my credit card. And I set up a, like a supplement distribution out of my dorm where I would get protein powders and creatines and vitamins in and sell them to the football players and the volleyball players and everything else. Um, again, not to make any money, not because I wanted to have a big company. I just wanted my protein powder for free. And so uh, I got to meet a lot of good people and I went and met with the football players and the coaches and we put packages together for the basketball players for, you know, for, for summer training. I think the, the nearest GNC was one overpriced and it was in Sioux Falls, which was a 45 minute drive. So you couldn't buy protein powder in Brookings. So I, I set up a minimum order with a company called DPS nutrition. I think they're still around yep. today. Um, and, uh, I, uh, I used to get boxes and boxes and boxes delivered to my dorm room and I would sell it out of my dorm. So, um, and that's, yeah, it. so I, maybe it's been kind of built in. And then I went into corporate and I was in corporate for quite some time. And, uh, you know, at first, I, at first it worked really well. And, uh, and then I, I, I think I just, I got sick of some of the, some of the, the, you know, the box, if you will, that corporate puts you in and, when you want it, when you're creative and, you know, you think out of the box, like an entrepreneur does, and you try to apply some of those in the corporate space, sometimes they say, well, that's not how we do it here. That's against policy, or you can't do that. Or, you know, um, that's not your job at somebody else's. And sometimes you, you, uh, you stick out and sometimes you decide to go your own way, which I ultimately did. So how many times did you get told you can't do something before you thought, all right, I got to do something different? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it was one of those like, you know, where there, um, yeah, I was, I wanted to, I wanted to work my way through the organization and I wanted to live in New York in a big, you know, high rise. And I wanted to work, you know, 80 hour weeks and wear a, you know, $2,000 suit every day. And that's what I wanted. And I wanted to have the big job with the big money and, um, and, uh, and, or I thought I wanted. And then, you know, once I tried to kind of create my path and that's not how it was done, um, I just kind of got sour on it and, 
there was a promotion that, thank goodness, it didn't happen going to Denver. And uh, that kind of soured me even more. And uh, then I just, I started looking at other options and I started contract diagnostics, which started out on a separate company and then just kind of, you know, morphed into what it is today. And I just kind of started it on the side, you know, and I worked nights and weekends and, you know, it took, you know, some time and it provided some financial stability for my family as it, as it started to be profitable. Um, but I didn't need the money so I could put it back in. So yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't regret my time in, in corporate at all. I mean, I learned a ton. I met some great lifelong friends. Um, they, they paid well so I could live off of that. So I could, you know, invest in the company at, a, at an early age. I didn't have to worry about making a profit. I could worry about the customers and making a good product. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it's been an interesting, an interesting role for sure. Well, it's kind of funny. It's, uh, from selling stereos and the protein powder and then now this contract services, you're selling what people didn't even know they needed. And you're like, they don't even know they have a better stereo, but I'm going to go sell them. They don't even know they eat protein powder because they all eat meat, but I'm going to give them protein powder. And they don't even know that they don't need a whole big law firm to do a contract. They can use me to do this. So how about that? That's yeah. a, that's definitely the, the trail of an entrepreneur for sure. Well, we kind of, you know, I, when I was looking at this market, you know, 12 years ago or so, there really wasn't like, you know, there wasn't like a national brand. And I had lots of f friends who were physicians who, who could, you know, who could kind of give me guidance. I said, well, who'd you use for this service? And either they didn't know they should, or they called some local attorney who didn't understand physicians and physician contracts. And, um, you know, they live, if they were living in Kansas city, but they were starting a job in Texas, do I get a lawyer in Kansas city? Do I call somewhere in Texas? How do I find someone in Texas? Um, you know, do I meet with them? Do I have a phone call? Do we email what's best? There was no real guidance and there's no real national company that could just do everything in all 50 states. So um, we found a niche and, and uh, yeah. And, and now we have a new product that I feel hundreds of thousands of physicians need. And now we're back in the process of telling them, you know, uh, of teaching them that they do absolutely need this product. And I mentioned to my, my team all the time that I feel like we're trying to sell an iPhone in 1984, you know, and you, you should, should trust you need this in your pocket. It's going to revolutionize the way you live. And people would say, what are you talking about? There's no way I need this thing, you know? So it's, a, it's, it's, it's fun and challenging at the same time. Well, so this would be a great time segue into tell us, you know, what is it that your company does? It, it sounds like you're kind of practicing law, but not really, but you're in all the States, but how does that, how does that work when you're giving this kind of advice for clients? Tell us what you kind of do. I'm, I'm a physician and I, have to, you know, get hired in. I got to sign a contract. Do I call you first? How does that work? Yeah. So um, we've got great attorneys that work here, but we don't operate like a law firm. So we don't give legal advice. You know, we're consultants, if you will. So we understand the way that a physician should understand risk in a contract so we can go through it with him or her and really kind of explain it in plain English as far as what's clear in the document. If something's not clear, we don't interpret it. We tell the physician that they need to go better understand it or have it be more clear in the agreement. Um, but we spend a lot of time focusing on compensation. So physician compensation has changed dramatically over the years. And some of them are paid on productivity. Um, and some of them have very dynamic productivity structures. I mean, some compensation plans will be six or seven total pages long in themselves. And they have no idea what RVUs are or you know, what collection ratios are fair or, you know, how to analyze a report as far as their profitability or not. So we spend a lot of time just discussing and explaining what their particular situation is. 
comparing what they have to the market value. So if you're a cardiologist in Chicago, it's much different than a cardiologist in Texas or a cardiologist in California. But a cardiologist in, um, you know, in uh, in San Jose is much different than one in Sacramento and much different than one in, in San Diego. And if you're at a hospital or a small practice, they're also dramatically different. So since this is all we do, we can focus and talk to the physician in a way that a physician needs to be talked with. Because, of course, a cardiologist has a different personality, typically, than a pediatrician, different than a surgeon. So we're able to kind of talk to each individual physician in their language um, and, and kind of coach them on, you know, we might have to, we might have to really motivate a pediatrician to ask for more money because they're so sweet. They're so kind. They would, they, how do I, how do I ask for $5,000? And uh, we sometimes have to tame the surgeon because, you know, they want to go in and say, oh, I'm going to ask them for $50,000. And, you know, we, well, maybe that's not market norm. So um, we basically just get to discuss with them and we give them guidance on where the risk is and what, you know, how they could better discuss it, how they can understand it. Um, and how they can have a good discussion with the employer, both now while they have the contract and then moving forward throughout their career. So I hate to say like, I, I, it's, 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 it's simple, it's not easy. We just look mm-hmm. at contracts and we just talk to doctors. Uh, and there's a, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the background with you know, compensation data, understanding market trends, understanding you know, how different markets might move from one to the next. Um, and, uh, and everything else. So simple, not easy, I guess, is, a, is an easy way to say it. So, John, I'm curious. You were in your corporate job doing what you do. Where was the aha moment to create this, to see this need, to fulfill it? Obviously, you did both for a little bit of time, but w- did someone come to you and ask for advice, or what kind of made you have that idea or that moment? So uh, in my in, in some of my roles, I interacted with physicians uh, on a very routine basis. And, you know, I would just always, I was always questioning, you know, um, uh, what's the worst part of your day? You know, what's a, what's a hassle when you're going through this? You know, one, I was just trying to become, you know, get to know them and be more, be, be friends with them. But two, I was just curious. And um, one of the things that a lot of physicians kept saying was when they finished their training, uh, the process from I finished my medical training to I'm going to go get a job. It's very uh, very challenging. I mean, physicians all get jobs. You know, we hear about the physician shortage. It's unlike a, a college grad who tries to get a, a job in accounting and they can't find anything in accounting. Um, but physicians always find jobs. It might not be the ideal location or the ideal place, but they always get jobs. And then with most opportunities, a contract comes with it. But we didn't want to work on the contract at first uh, because all the physicians said the process of finding a job is difficult. The process of relocating all of our stuff is challenging. They typically finish their training in June, but they don't start jobs until August or even September once they're you know, board certified and they've got credentials at the hospital and everything else. So there's a lag in there where they don't have financial means sometimes. They don't have a job. So they're kind of waiting and doing paperwork and moving and everything else. Um, but they said the recruiters, all my friends said the recruiters were a, a, a pain in the side. They said this contract thing is a pain in the side. They said, um, you know, just transitioning, just understanding what comes next. It's just a hassle. So I was going to create a company uh, called New Cloud Medical, which is actually the parent company of Contract Diagnostics at DBA. And New Cloud was going to do everything. We were going to reinvent the entire thing. We were going to reinvent recruiting. We were going to reinvent um, contract reviews. We're going to reinvent, 
you know, I mean, I was going to have a card that they could go down to their local BMW dealership and get a discount, you know, on a, on a BMW if they wanted to, or a moving company, they could get a discount. We were going to have a real estate division and a banking division and an investment division and sell them life insurance and disability insurance. And we were going to do everything and reinvent it all. And, um, you know, and so that's the way the company started. And of course, I realized you can't do everything great. And one of the things I didn't like around the recruiting thing was all the phone calls and all the you know, back and forth emails. And, you know, um, at, at the at the stereo company, people would come in, you'd help them, you'd sell them a stereo and it was transactional. You know, you buy something from me for two hundred dollars and I make thirty five dollars or whatever. There's a transaction. I like that. I could go home at the end of the day saying I worked for eight hours. I got to help five people and four people bought something from me and I made one hundred dollars or so. But with recruiting, much like with real estate, you might show a ton of houses or, you know, you might make a ton of phone calls and then nobody signs and nobody calls you back. It's hard to decide if my day was well spent or not. And you might make $20,000 on some random day or 30000 on some random day with one phone call. But you might go a month before you do that. And I didn't like that. And so we did some contract reviews and I like that transactional nature. We provide you a service and knowledge and you give us money. And, and then we can do it again and again and again. And um, then I started looking at the market and talking to other friends. And I realized that there was no company that was really looking at this thing on a national basis that was just a national brand that anybody could call on any state and get good advice from people who knew what they were doing. So that's where we kind of started contract, or I started contract diagnostics. Um, and we kind of dropped everything else because you know, I said, I'd rather be world-class at one thing than sort of kind of good at a whole bunch of things. And uh, so then we started contract, or I started contract diagnostics, I think 12 years ago, maybe it was. We've had some copycats, which is really kind of cool, I think, um, as far as other companies now, which is fun. Um, but, uh, but it started with something else and it ended up, you know, um, being totally different than what I had initially had the vision for. So in the beginning, and as you went through that process of starting it, did you have a mentor or someone that was really by your side that you could ask that advice and get the solid truth instead of maybe what you wanted to hear? You know, nobody like nobody that I would say I met with like every single week, you know, and they sat down and they grilled me. Um, you know, my dad worked for uh, a guy that uh, in Brookings, Larson Stormdoors, and Dale Larson is a fantastic person and a wonderful entrepreneur and, a, and now a, a, a brilliant philanthropist, which he had, I mean, I guess his whole life he has been. And I would, you know, talk to Dale from time to time and he would, you know, he would kind of just give me global advice, you know, on here's how to think of this, here's how to give back, you know, here's how to treat people if you ever hire anybody. Um, but it wasn't necessarily like I was bringing my business problems to him. It was more kind of just global advice. And I had a handful of relationships like that, that I could get kind of global advice on, um, or coaches, if you will, but nobody that I could really sit down and say, this is my problem with this company or this website or this competitor or this pricing for packaging. Um, it was just all kind of, I just how it was just kind of me in my basement, you know, sleepless nights and a lot of weekends and, um, and everything else. You know, it's a it's a funny thing listening to you because I think one of the cool parts about this is that you had already been indoctrinated talking to surgeons and doctors and and all these folks and they just think about things in a little different way and you just got to learn how to communicate with them and mm -hmm. listen to what they're really saying cuz really they just want to go do doctoring stuff. They don't really want to do anything else. But 
they just probably didn't feel like anybody ever listened or nor did they even know the question to ask about the other stuff. And, you know, we see that doctors, they just don't know the financial part of things and what it means for taxes and retirement and, and all those protections, like you were mentioning, those other services that you were going to provide. You know, there's a great opportunity for that because, you know, people really want someone they can trust to do all those things. And so I think it's interesting that you really didn't need to know really what to sell. You just knew how to talk to people and you just listened to them and all of a sudden there you are. Now you've had to figure out how to package it. How did you come up with your packaging process and knowing, hey, I got to be able to scale this thing. I don't want to just deal with 10 clients. I want to deal with thousands and not only going to be thousands of clients, but they're going to start in these three states and then in five years, doctors always move. I'm going to have to be in these 12 states. And in three more years, I got to be in 50 states. How did you figure that part out? Um, you know, I did a lot of the work on my own at first. And, you know, um, I had, you know, some contractors that I would have, you know, uh, help out with various things. But um, I, I think the, and the company just kind of organically grew. You know, and I, I put more time in and less time in corporate and more time in the company and less time in corporate. Um, and uh, and then when we got to the right, when I, when I was at my capacity, you know, where we just couldn't help any more people, I thought we could raise prices and maybe we'll get less business and that we'll still make the same amount of money. Or I could bring somebody else on, you know, and so I brought someone to help a little bit. You know, and uh, we're still a small company. We just got a handful of associates here that work with us. But, you know, um, over the years, I've always, you know, I've appropriately scaled. And maybe that's, you know, uh, maybe my risk tolerance for a typical entrepreneur is much less because I haven't, you know, cashed out the 401k and hired, you know, five people at once and then worried about it later. I've just kind of very slowly you know, scaled over, you know, the last, you know, 12 years. And it was probably just me for the first five years, you know, where I did everything from billing to, you know, to accounting, to all the emails, to paperwork. And I had like some contractors that I would have help you know, with some attorneys and that thing. But, um, but then I brought somebody on to help with the books. And then I brought somebody on to help with contracts. And then I brought, and then my, my, at the time, the gal who was helping me with billing, she took on more tasks and more roles. And she went from, you know, seven hours a, a week to now, I mean, she's probably seven or nine hours a day. You know, so um, so we just kind of appropriately and slowly kind of gone from there. But I did a lot of the work at first. And, you know, it's those late nights and those uh, those, those weekends that you give up that I think build, you know, and, and you have that grit that builds a lot of character when you're starting a company. And then you look back and you appreciate it much more when your schedule is a little more open. This seems really weird that like you just didn't magically happen overnight. You're a multi-gajillionaire with a thousand employees. I mean, it takes time and effort and sacrifice. Is that, you're telling us something different than other people tell us? It's so weird. I don't know if that's a, a pass now with, you know, Bitcoin and all that no. stuff, or if it's, if, if it's still one of those things that, you know, you find something that you really enjoy, you put your heart and soul into it and, you know, and, and you work it till you're blue in the face and, you know, you don't give up and you provide good products and then, and, and things happen. I think that's, you know, this, this, this podcast is all about the journey and how to get from A to B from, you know, real job to entrepreneur. And so when you had real job and you decided to do this thing on the side, how long did it take for you to be double dipping before you said, you know, that's it. It's time. I'm going full on in. How, how long a time was that you think? Um, Again, from my my individual risk tolerance is probably much different than you know a lot of typical entrepreneurs. Um, I would say maybe it was seven years. Oh wow! 
yeah. maybe eight years. Um, and it just kind of, again, it just kind of slowly kind of came on. And um, I had a full schedule at my, in my, in corporate. So it wasn't an eight to five Monday through Friday type of job. You know, some days were longer, some days were shorter. Um, you know, some nights I worked and then I took the other, the next day off. And so the job was, was very flexible um, and uh, more results-based than time-based. And I had great results. And so my time was in question. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it probably took that long, which again, it allowed me to not only, you know, bring the company up, but as I was working, um, you know, I could invest a little in the company, but it also, because the company ended up making, you know, two or three times what my, um, my, my salary in corporate was. Um, and so it, was, it wasn't a thing about I should leave because I can afford to leave. Um, but then it became, you know, how do we feel, again, my risk tolerance might be, you know, less than some entrepreneurs. So, we, you know, we spent time paying off debt. We spent time saving money for the kids. My wife was working a lot at the time as well. And we spent time paying off the house and, you know, and really kind of getting in a solid financial position, both with contract diagnostics and us individually. And, um, and then we made a decision to leave corporate together. And it actually took, it, it was actually, um, we made a decision to leave on a particular day. And it was actually, uh, the plan was kind of blown up because the company, um, it, it was a fantastic company, but they actually came to us. They were, they were gonna fold the division that I was working in because it was a product that was running off of a patent in pharmaceuticals and biotech. And so um, as that product was coming off of a patent, they didn't have anywhere to assign the division. So they announced a year, a year in advance, I think, a year and a couple of months in advance that they're going to dissolve the division and give everybody a severance package. So it's a little ironic that they actually paid me to leave. Um, so it was kind of everything worked out great, you know, but again, we had made a decision that we're going to leave on this particular day, on this particular month. And the month before we were going to, you know, throw the towel in, if you will, and give all the stock back and say, keep the job and the, and the salary and everything. Um, they announced that if I would wanted to stick around for a year, they were going to pay me to leave. And again, I didn't hate the job and the flexible schedule was, was great. And I had friends that I worked with. So it wasn't like maybe some where they hate their job and they're grinding eight to five Monday through Friday. You know, I was able to spend a lot of time on contract diagnostics while still meeting expectations at corporate. Um, and then we kind of, I made a decision with my wife to stick around for another year, just from a financial, um, decision, it was a good one to make. And I didn't think that leaving that job to focus on contract diagnostics at the time was, um, was something that, that, that was urgent, urgent. Um, but then we did book a trip, uh, to take our kids to Italy the entire summer of 2019, uh, which is when we, when we ended up leaving corporate and, uh, and then we kind of celebrated by spending the entire summer of 2019 with the kids in Italy. So it worked out well. Is there a, a way I can get the number of that cushy corporate job so I can apply for that? That sounds awesome. <laughs> well, it wasn't. I mean, well, I, I hate to say it wasn't cushy. It was a ton of work and you had to be very good and very talented at the position. But, um, but uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it worked out well. And I still, I still talk with my friends at the company and, you know, and uh, I, I still miss everybody. I miss the camaraderie that we used to have, you know, because when you're in a small company, you know, it's just different than when you're with a big company and you've got lots and lots of colleagues and associates. So I was doing the math, John, and I'm not really good at math. So <sighs> no, she's not. If I did it incorrectly, please correct me. But did you hire your first employee to be a part of your team before you left corporate America? Yes. That's awesome. And so 
what ultimately led you to make that decision that you decided you needed to delegate and get that off of your plate in order to continue to juggle both those roles? Um, I, I, we, the, the, the business was strong and my time was, was, was kind of capped. And I realized that it has to get bigger than just me because, you know, I didn't, even if I, if I left corporate, I wanted more of a flexible schedule. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to go from, you know, getting up at three in the morning to get to the gym, to get both jobs done all day long. And then working, you know, three nights, four nights a week. Sometimes I worked every Sunday night for eight or nine years. I worked from, I think four o'clock till 10 o'clock every single Sunday night for, you know, for seven, eight years, maybe. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be able to go to Italy with my kids. That was one of the dreams my wife and I had. We wanted to spend, you know, a whole summer in Italy. And I knew that I could do that if I was also, you know, doing 100% of the, the, the production. And I knew that there was also a lot more people out there that we needed to help. Because if you looked at the available market for our products um, and you looked at how many we were serving, we were super busy. But um, but still not being able to serve everybody that needs it. And so I kind of felt an obligation to bring people on and do a, a little bit of scaling, if you will. And I felt that that was the, the best time was then when I had more of a financial you know, backing with corporate and I could kind of take the money and invest because I didn't need it to pay bills. Um, and so I felt like that was the right time versus when I might feel like my future self would tell me I'm a little more tight with finances because I don't have the corporate money coming in every single month. Did you have a, um, at this point, again, even though you've been doing this for seven years, how long has this been going on now? Since 12? Contract? Um, yeah, 12 years. Okay. So, but it's only in the last, you've been on your own with no corporate job for like the last four then? Yes. Okay. Yep. So do you have any regrets or son of a moments that you wish you could do it over again that you would have changed to get you where you are quicker or are you perfectly content with how the pace that you have developed your company and your career path and your entrepreneurial journey? Are you, are you good with that? Or you're like, oh man, if I had just known this person or that process or engage this person, particular advisor, I could have got there quicker. Is, is there any advice for people listening that, you know, list, if you could just see that one thing like, oh, pay attention to that blinking light? Yeah, I think, you know, Maybe the one thing that I would change was, you know, is the the way that you that I you prioritize initiatives. So I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, you have, you know, a, a, a laundry list of ideas for the company. You know, you, I've got I want to get this done and this done and add this and, you know, and I'll do this to the website or this to the blog or this to the YouTube. I mean, there's there's I mean, I have a list of I think still 32 ideas on ways that we can make the company better or new products or help more people or, you know, add something on or fill in the blank. And, uh, you know, as and I've, I've slowly kind of ticked things off that list, um, again, knowing that I, I'm not the type of person to just jump in and hire, uh, a, you know, a, a chief operating officer to start knocking stuff off that list. Um, but I think I would have maybe you know, started prioritizing that list maybe a little bit different uh, years ago. But I don't know that I regret anything as far as timelines go. You know, the way that the, the corporate job worked out and when I hired my first person and how the company started and, you know, how things kind of fell in place. I think that's, the, the, you know, that as, 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 as purposeful, I think, as it was when my wife and I made those decisions, I think they were all the right ones, you know, because now at 43 with, with a nine-year-old and a six, seven-year-old uh, child, we feel like we're in very good financial footing. And I think because we we took our time and did it slow. 
again, for me, I, I know that I've, I've got friends who, you know, quit a, a, a store director job at, at Target. You know, he, we thought our friend was going to be the next CEO of Target Corporation, you know, 15 years ago. And he was running a store by himself with a $300 million budget and 400 employees at the age of 26. And he quit that job, cashes out his 401k and starts a company, you know. And so it's those things that you you, uh, you I, I envy people who think like that. Unfortunately, it's just not me. So I think the pace that, that I did it was appropriate for my particular risk tolerance and thresholds. Yeah, I think your your um, your perseverance, your, you didn't want to rush into it. You had very much purpose doing what you needed to do. I, I like that. Uh, again, a lot of entrepreneurs want it all, you know, yesterday. It's hard to have somebody that, you know, is like, you know, I'm not in any hurry. I want to do it right and do it, do it all I can. Yeah. And I, again, I, I've, I've said many times, you know, I, I think my, the, the, the tolerance that I have for risk has, has impeded me in many ways from my investing strategy with excess funds to the way that I've run the company, I, you know, and I see what some of my friends have done. And, and I'm like, if, if I had their risk tolerance, my company might be three times as big or four times as big. Um, I may have, you know, I may have three times or four times a portfolio. I don't know. Or maybe I would have crashed and burned, you know, but again, I, I can't force that, you know, I mean, I can't force that on, 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 uh, on myself and I don't want to try. I wouldn't sleep at night. And so for my individual risk tolerance, I think the pace that I took was very, was very reasonable knowing that my mother still thought I was crazy when she said, what do you mean you're going to quit your job, your job, you have insurance and they give you all these wonderful things. How would you ever quit a job? You know, how are your kids going to have health insurance? You know, so, you know, so for me and my family tree, if you will, jumping out of the corporate, you know, um, plane, you know, if you will, and, and starting something on your own is, uh, even though it was well established, is not the typical, you know, in my gene pool. You know, that's a, a good note on that is that, you know, entrepreneurs, it's, you know, bigger isn't better, better is better. And you don't have to be big to be great. You don't have to be big to achieve whatever. It's your own individual thing that you really, really want to do. And if you had the right pace to do that, that that's it's that's admirable to do it do it that way. Did you have any? Uh, <clears throat> you don't have a desire to, uh, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you have this. Everybody has this special thing that they're good, their superpower that just makes them set aside in their industry or who they are, just their shtick that they have. You know. Do you have you really evaluated what your superpower is? I haven't. No, you know, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a natural salesman, you know, um, and so I don't know if that's a superpower or if I'm just a, a, a salesman. I love talking with people, um, and I'm a nice guy, you know. So I've never in, I've never tried to take advantage of somebody or tried to sell somebody something that they don't need for, you know, for a, for a profit, you know, we've always focused on, we're, we're a service company, so we want to serve you. And if there's, I mean, I, I said from the beginning, I started the company not to make money, but to help people. And I figured if we helped enough people, we'd have plenty of money. And um, so I think, uh, I don't know that I, that's a superpower, but I think I'm a natural salesperson. And at the same time, I'm not selling something for money. I'm just selling information and advice. And and um, so I, I don't know if you want to call that a sales or a, a superpower, but I think just being a nice guy sometimes is a, is a wonderful thing. And, and maybe it's the Brookings, South Dakota roots that stick out. And I think it comes through. And I think I think people appreciate and notice that. And uh, and they like working with you as a, as a result. How long ago did you get rid of all your flashy uh, sales coats and, and sport jackets? I mean, you got to break all these stereotypes. 
Yeah, it was nice. I had really, really nice, you know, business suits and I kept one in case I need to go to a wedding ever. Um, and I want to wear a suit. Right. Um, and, uh, and that's it. So, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, I got, I got rid of them before I even left corporate because the dress code had changed, changed. from business every day to, you know, wear, wear some slacks and a collar shirt if you want to. Do you have, uh, did you have like, uh, when you're doing this, entrepreneurs usually have this, uh, this wall that they hit or this insurmountable climbing, you know, steep this ascent that they just can't get over. There's this, this fear that they have like, Oh my God, I just, I just can't break through that. Did you have any of that fear for you that prevented you from doing what you wanted to do? Or were you very, it sounds like you're very methodical and just whittling that down. So it wasn't a big deal, but was there this big thing that like, my God, there's everybody's against me. How, how do I succeed? Nobody's going to respect me. I mean, what was that your biggest fear that you had to overcome? And this is going to sound silly, but it's it's a totally honest um, answer. Uh, it's it was healthcare. You know, I've got two young kids, and we've got friends who have you know gotten gotten cancer and gotten sick. I've got a dad that has coronary disease. I've seen you know people break bones. I know what how much healthcare costs in America, and uh, so you know one of it was one of the things was what are we going to do for insurance? You know, and do you just pay? You know. $30,000 or $35,000 a year for a private plan? You know, do you jump into, you know, a health share? Do you, you know, uh, do you jump into the, you know, to the Affordable Care Act and the marketplace? Do you, I mean, and it was, it, it, it sounds so silly, you know? Um, and, you know, and, and I had a lot of my friends who were even entrepreneurs. They're like, they're like, please tell me you're not keeping your corporate job because of, health insurance, you know, and uh, it, it, it was a hang up for both my wife and I. And, um, and so, uh, um, so that was it, you know, and we kind of worked through it. You know, we, we did have both, both children while we were in corporate. So, you know, a hundred dollars for the birth of a child when my sister was paying 3,500, I think for hers with her insurance. Um, and she works at a hospital. You know, um, so, um, you know, but that was a big hangup for us. And it, it was a lot of work to kind of navigate that process to make both my wife and me feel comfortable in the path that we were choosing for our family as far as making sure that that health care didn't bankrupt, bankrupt us in the future. That managing risk gets the hardest part of an entrepreneur because sometimes you have to go all in and risk it all. And, and sometimes you don't have to. You just got to be very purposeful with the way you do it. Um, it, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs like to, we, and we like to call it, uh, you're either doing business is when you're doing your, doing your task, your thing that you do and you, and you do that very well and you have a small team around you, but you're basically doing all the things that are kind of, you know, relevant. And then at some point an entrepreneur likes doing that and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great business model. And sometimes I like to flip the switch with actually building a business where they're going to bring in and just methodically hire people in all those categories to kind of just run it. And you, the entrepreneur, are just kind of like being the business person where you're really not day-to-day -day operations. You're more on the big picture. Do you have an affinity to which side of that aisle you want to be at? Are you in the middle there right now transitioning or where are you at in that? Or do you yeah. even care? You know, uh, no, it's not, I think about it all the time. I've always said, I'm, you know, if you're working if you're working in the business, you can't work on the business, you know? And so I spent a lot of time working in the business, you know, and I couldn't focus on working on it because I was so busy just producing, right? Just daily operational things that somebody, that the company does. Um, 
And so, yeah, as I've hired people, I've slowly kind of shifted away from having other people do that. I do love talking with physicians. You know, I love having those kind of calls. I love, I love when you, when you interact with somebody and, you know, and a lot of physicians, they can be arrogant. So the fact that they're reaching out to us to ask for help, you know, because they're used, everyone goes to them, right? You have all the information. I'm coming to you to pay you to give me information. Um, And so to have that role reversed, when they're looking at you and they're so appreciative, thank you so much for this. You've helped my family. You know, we we'll get an email, you know, I got a, we, we have a, we helped a physician that hadn't had a raise in four years, um, get a $70,000 a year raise and an extra week of vacation every year. So over the next three years, $210,000 worth of extra income for his family and three extra weeks of vacation over those three years to enjoy time with his kids with no extra production that he, he had to do, no extra hours he had to put in because of the way that we rolled it out to his employer. And so you get those messages from people and it, it, it brings you joy, number one, but you see how it impacts their family, number two. And that's one of those things where I never wanna get away from that, even though I've gotten great people that can do that now, I, I really enjoy those emails. I really enjoy that feedback from the clients. And so I don't wanna get away from that. But yeah, we've got lots of really important things that we're trying to do to the business, which is why I'm spending a lot of time now with, you know, with, with, uh, with people that are helping, you know, build email funnels and build, you know, a YouTube channel and, you know, and set up, you know, podcast interviews with, you know, with, with physicians that have their own podcasts and, you know, and add additional products and, you know, make our system more streamlined and reach more people through social media. You know, I, I, I do want to spend a lot of time doing that in the future because I know that the company just has so much more that it can do. Um, not from a money-making perspective, even though I know that'll come, but there's just so many more people that we can help um, that uh, I feel a, a, almost a, a, an obligation to the physicians that we don't get to talk to every year that to, to, to show them that we're here so they can find us and we can provide some advice to them. So a theme I've kind of heard throughout, but you haven't really solidified it, is I think relationships have been the key to where you are today, no matter if it's been in in your business, in corporate, in and around that area. It seems like you've really been able to solidify, grow all the relationships that you've had to in order to get to where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. You know, it's a, there's a trick question that we did about 10 minutes ago that you said you only had a list with 32 things on it, and that is a blatant lie. You know it and I know it. That list, if I'm not mistaken, is infinity. And the hard part as an entrepreneur is staying on point and methodically like you have done very successfully. And I suspect you're going to continue to do that is to your, your head's got all this stuff in it. Cause there, it is really, you see the market, you just know there's unbridled optimism and an opportunity everywhere and trying to just do one thing at a time and work on it. And I guess that dovetails back to the other question I had earlier is now that you kind of done a process to do this one thing that you're doing on the next things that are like the big picture items, is that something that you're going to delegate, empower others to do that, to help get those up to speed quicker? Or are you going to still stay in the same methodical step? Have you figured that part out yet? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I I work with um, a, um, like a small business, you know, I, I, we're not big enough to have like a, like, like a, 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 you know, a chief operating officer, if you will, that has, you know, everybody below them and a marketing division and a, 
you know, and a tech team and everything else. So um, there's uh, a small team that I work with that kind of has all those to work part time here and there on projects. And as we bring them more projects and we don't delegate more things to them, um, that's becoming a very valuable relationship. Um, but at the same time, you know, I do, I enjoy working on these things. And so now that the challenge comes to how do I trade my time, you know? So I, there's so many things I want to do. I've got young kids and, you know, I, I, I refuse to be one of those parents who say, oh, they grew up too fast. And now all of a sudden, I mean, my kids are nine and seven. And I, I'd like to, I'd like to think that my, I've got nine more years with my son before he takes off and, you know, goes to get a job or goes to university or, or starts a business. Um, but I realized that, you know, that 17 year old sons, they're not going to want to hang out with me all summer long. They're going to want to go hang out with their friends. And so I maybe have a solid few years that, you know, that he wants to hang out with me and he wants to go on trips with me. And, you know, and I get to see him quite a bit before he's out running around with his friends, driving cars or, or, or walking around or doing whatever. So, so I, I'm trying to kind of balance now my, you know, the, the level of work that I want to do, um, at the same time, the obligation that I feel to the company and the people who I get to work with to to grow it and, and add products and add, add revenue and everything else. So it's that it's that internal conflict. You know, I wish that I had forty hour days. Unfortunately, I don't, and so uh, so I'll kind of have to make do with you know balancing everything out in the interim. I feel like if you went back to about ten years ago when you're working the uh, twelve thousand hours a week at three in the morning, that's when it's going to get done. But no, you've got a little soft, and that's okay. But uh, you're, you're figuring it out as you go. But no, no I, I, don't that that's a, I don't know that that's that that may be an accurate statement. You know, as far as uh, as far as a little bit soft, I don't. I wouldn't disagree with. That. I'm I'm kidding you, of course. Well, is there a? Would you like to give a little plug for your company so we can put this on the podcast so people can find you if they need to? Yeah, I mean, uh, contract diagnostics. You know, you type it into the Google machine and and it pops up. So it's contractdiagnostics.com. Um, and, uh, again, it's so easy what we do. We help physicians understand their contracts and their compensation structures. So if, if any physicians listen, you know, they can call us. We have a free 15 minute consult. They can call us up and, or they can book a consult and we can just talk with them for 15 minutes. No charge. We have a couple of products from a compensation analysis to a contract review on our website. Um, and, uh, if, if, if somebody knows a physician, um, they can send them over to the site. We have free webinars and all kinds of free stuff, free resources all over the site. So it's one of those things that uh, if they want to find us, they they can. We've done a pretty good job of of uh, putting ourselves out there on the market. Is it fair to say that you've got a kick butt stereo system in your car because you're a, you know a guy? Um, I don't. I have a. I love. I have a. I'm kind of over that now, but I still am into customizing vehicles. I have a Toyota 4Runner. That is an overlanding vehicle, so it's got you know a tent and it's got you know all custom wheels and lift kits and uh, kitchens in the back and all that kind of stuff. And I love getting up into the mountains and uh, and relaxing and um, and uh, kind of you know you know getting away from things from time to time. But uh, it definitely has a factory stereo, which for me is just fine, more than adequate. But boy, back in the yeah. day, you had to get the cool stuff. Yeah, I had great back in the day absolutely what was the brand back in the day that was the one that they couldn't get just out of curiosity kicker kicker huh kicker. yeah there were subwoofers and we wanted kicker and i think rockford fosgate was another one and you know we wanted kenwood as far as like uh, you know decks and everything the whole market has changed so much because with 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 new cars and touchscreens and apple carplay i mean everything is just so different now as far as 
you know, adding secondary systems and, uh, and everything else. So I, I know the market's changed quite a bit, um, but, um, you know, but this, the, the, the stereo company is still very successful. They, they, they put stuff in boats and in campers. They still do cars. They do, old, you know, retro cars. They do remote starts and older vehicles. And it's a, it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool company back in Brooklyn still. That's fantastic. Well, John, I really appreciate you taking the time today to come on and, uh, Hopefully this will help some entrepreneurs out there realize that there's more than one way to get to uh, through your journey uh, to get your entrepreneurial success. This is Glenn Harper. Julie Smith. Thanks for joining us, everybody. At Harper & Company CPA Plus, we just don't care about the numbers. We care about helping you tap into the greatness of your entrepreneurial journey. You deserve a partner who has helped hundreds of businesses go from paying the bills to building the business and lifestyle of their dreams. Go to our website and download our free guide entitled Entrepreneurial Success Formula, How to Avoid Managing Your Business from Your Bank Account. The link is in this episode's show notes.